0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello, and welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, myasthenia gravis, why it's easily missed. I suppose
1: myasthenia gravis is rare. The current prevalence figures for the UK are around about 15 per 100,000 in the population. So the average GP practice would have approximately one patient only. So it is a rare disease, but certainly something people are going to come across during their careers.
0: But first... This week sees the last in a series of articles looking at prison health in England and Wales. Today, I'm joined by Francis Crook, director of the Howard League for Penal Reform. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Francis. My pleasure. Um, so just to start us off... What is the Howard League?
2: Howard League was founded in 1866, so it's one of the oldest charities in the country. And that was the year that there was a Royal Commission on Capital Punishment, which decided to abolish public executions. So we were founded to ask the question, if you're not going to execute people or use physical punishments or transport them to other parts of Mm. the globe, what do you do with people? Uh, who've done something wrong, have committed a crime, in order to try to change their lives and, and make them into responsible citizens, and that's basically the question we still ask. And some of the principles are the same, and some of the methods are the same, but some things have changed.
0: Mm. And we'll we'll go into some of that yes. detail. But just to sort of start us out, it's been sort of demonstrated in these articles that our prison population going up at the moment and the, the demographics are changing as well more women are being imprisoned um, so what's driving this change
2: well the use of prison has been going up over the past 20 years or so um, for a, a number of different reasons and, and academics and people argue about this interminably um, i think that the howard leagues identified a number of different reasons one is is part is political uh, it's not to do with crime mm. it's to do with politics and our politicians use crime and they use prison as a political weapon against each other. And that ups the ante. Mm. Um, and in fact, that's been happening today in, in the media. I've just been watching uh, um, the, two, the Justice Secretary and the Shadow Justice Secretary arguing about how big the prison population <laughs> should be. So it's, it's, it's mainly political. It's not to do with crime.
0: Okay, which really does beg the question, are we imprisoning people correctly? And I think that's that's a point i definitely want to cover. Um, but before we get to that, two of the articles, looking particularly at um, older prisoners and prisoners with mental health problems, are, are looking at how we treat prisoners and how different populations uh, with different needs are treated. So um, if we start with older prisoners... Do you think there's a, an understanding amongst perhaps the government of the the different needs of patients when it perhaps comes to things like, you know, social care?
2: We have a, a growing uh, population in prison of, of older prisoners for mm. for two reasons. One is we sentence people to prison for a very long time. Uh, we have more life sentence prisoners in this country than all of the other countries in the Council of Europe put together. And it causes huge problems for the staff who have to manage them because if you're in your 70s or 80s, you can't work in prison, really. Mm -hmm. You don't work. You don't have to. Um, And they come with lots of uh, illnesses and infirmities, um, dementia as well. And that's incredibly expensive to care for people in the prison system. And prisons are simply incapable of dealing with that. They don't have... Um, ramps for wheelchairs they don't have proper health facilities um, and staff aren't able to cope with it that's not what staff are meant to be doing they're not there for palliative care Mm. Um, so it is causing huge problems and isn't being incredibly expensive
0: Mm. now Britain's prisons are sort of quite Victorian you know is it about the the physical structure
2: in a sense building modern prisons isn't the answer The, the answer comes earlier why are we sending elderly people to prison? In a, in a sense, it's a bit like motorways. You can't build your way out of a, out of an overcrowding problem because it just encourages more people to either take to their cars or send people to prison. Mm. So the, the solution can't be to widen the doors so the wheelchairs can get in or to put more NHS staff in so that they can deal with elderly and infirm um, prisoners the solution must be not to send people to prison if they don't need to be there. And that's it's, that's quite controversial, it's quite publicly sensitive because the older prisoners are there often for historic sex offences. People are very angry about sexual abuse mm-hmm. and historic abuse and they want something done. My question is, Is something done the right thing when it's sending somebody who's in their 80s to prison for two years to die there? Mm. Um, Are there better ways of responding in a symbolic and real way to that kind of horrendous activity? But I'm not sure that you do that appropriately by um, excessive punishments for the elderly and the infirm.
0: Mm. I mean, there has been arguments put forward, that's mentioned in the paper, that prison should perhaps be not for punishment, but for public safety.
2: I'm much more sympathetic to that view. Um, There are people in prison who actually are very dangerous. They've committed very serious offences and they are a continuing danger. Um, And that's with with a significant number of people that is not in doubt. Then there's a large number of people who simply shouldn't be in prison at all. Large number of people who are on remand and who will be found not guilty. And we have other people in prison who've committed minor offences who are a nuisance. They are a nuisance, but they're not dangerous. Uh, in my own experience, you know, we all know that punishing children is counterproductive. Punishing people is counterproductive. And in a sense, it makes it adds to the, to the general pain in a society. It makes things worse. Um, what we should be doing is trying to make things better.
0: And I'll pick that point up. Uh, again a little bit but if we could just move to another uh, point that um, the latest article in this series which goes up uh, today on Friday is looking at the rates of imprisonment for women and whether you know that's appropriate Um, and in there one of the suggestions is that that women shouldn't be imprisoned at all because of the the knock-on effects to, to families and things like that what do you think?
2: I and the Howard League has recommended closure of all women's prisons as they exist today. It's not They're not necessary. If you look at the kind of offences they've committed, they tend to be much less serious. They tend to be property crimes. Um, there are very few women who've taken a life. There are very few professional bank robbers who are women. There are maybe... 50 to 100 women who really are that dangerous, who've committed that, those sorts of serious offences and would be a continuing danger, who could stay in some kind of custody. And all the other women could be managed safely in the community. So it wouldn't put us at risk. Uh, it wouldn't put victims at risk. It would be much cheaper for the public and it would be much better for the women. And it's the morally right thing to do.
0: Hmm. Um, now, given that we're the BMJ, we're all about research and evidence... I just wonder if there's any good research that's going on into outcomes.
2: The research question is absolutely fascinating because the answer to that is that we know that prison fails. More than half of the people who go to prison go on to commit more crimes and are convicted within a couple of years, and yet we keep doing it. It it is actually quite bizarre. There is not taking place. There's there's no randomised control trials. We don't do those in social policy, usually, or political policy, and we don't do it in criminal justice policy. We we know a lot of facts, but we don't do research, partly because there's a lot of arguments amongst criminologists to say, well, it wouldn't be fair. Somehow it's acceptable in pharmaceutical or medical terms Mm. to do randomised controlled trials, but it's not in social social policy, which I think is bizarre. Um, In fact, I was with one of the big police forces two days ago, and they've commissioned a, um, a randomised control trial with Cambridge University to look at sentencing policy. And if you sentence people through the courts and they end up in custody or with, with one option, what are the outcomes? And if you if you give them restorative justice as an option instead, pre-trial, um, what what are the outcomes? So but it's starting to happen, and I'm very pleased because... Um, we need good quality research, but if you start saying this to judges and magistrates, or we want to do a proper trial on on um, um, and assess whether your decision making is is effective, they have the screaming heebie-jeebies, <laughs> <laughs> and really wouldn't allow it, I don't think. Mm. So we have to get we have to get research in there quietly.
0: Yep. In medicine, there's obviously a randomized controlled trial, but there are also methods that you can use to look at a population as it stands and analyze different things within that cohort study. Um, So in that sort of vein, are there other countries who are doing different things that work more effectively than, um, than our system in the UK?
2: It's very difficult to compare, and that's why you need proper trials, because other countries have different cultures, they have different um, values, they have um, different crimes. So, for example, if you look at at um, the Scandinavian countries, are always held up as being, you know, the wonderfully humane and sensible, and and we all want to live in in Norway, mm-hmm. um, which which is lovely, but they are, you know, they they ethnically. Very, all very similar to each other. They um, they have 100% literacy. Um, their problem is with alcohol. Mm. So they use prison for drunk drivers, whereas we tend not to. Uh, they, we have other problems. I mean, we have other social problems. So if you if you do comparisons, you'd have to go to you know, America. And I, I don't think that there's a lot that we should be looking at <laughs> to
0: learn from America. As you said at the beginning, the Howard League's been running since 1866, BMJ's 1840, so... Ah, uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, similar periods, but over yes. that time we've seen a massive change in, in medicine. Yes. Um, is there a, a feeling that there's a similar thing happening in, in prisons, or is that something that you hope to happen?
2: Well, it took a hundred years to get rid of the death penalty. Uh, the, and worldwide, interestingly, there was a vote in in the um, in the UN re- recently, and mo- again, more and more countries are voting against capital punishment. Um, in the states, it's moving there. So I, you know, it's that there is movement. What we're working at as well is is broadening our remit so that we're not just looking at prisons and talking about prisons. We're talking about how to deal with how we allocate resources and how we deal with people who offend at a, at a lower level so you don't get sucked into the system quickly. It's a bit like primary care. Mm. And, you know, let's deal with things in a primary way so that they don't end up in, in, the, in the heavy end, which is prison or hospital.
0: Frances, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. And that analysis series is now available online on bmj.com. Links from the podcast page. Now, myasthenia gravis.
3: Hi, I'm Krishna Chintapali. I'm the clinical fellow at the BMJ and also a neurology trainee. Uh, I have with me Dr. Jennifer Spillane, who's clinical research associate at UCL uh, and also a clinician specializing in neurology. And we're going to be talking about myasthenia gravis. So Jennifer, can I start off by asking you what is myasthenia gravis?
1: Sure. Well myasthenia gravis is a rare, potentially serious, but certainly treatable neurological condition. It's basically an autoimmune disease um where there's failure of neuromuscular transmission that's characterized by fatigable muscle weakness.
3: And how common is myasthenia gravis?
1: I suppose myasthenia gravis is rare. The current prevalence figures for the UK are around about 15 per 100,000 in the population. So the average GP practice would have approximately one patient only. So it is a rare disease, but certainly something people are going to come across during their careers.
3: OK. And does it affect everyone equally or are some people more affected?
1: Well, first of all, it can affect anyone. So it can affect children. It can affect anybody during any um, part of their life. But the incidence is typically bimodal. So there's two peaks, one in the early 20s, um, where young women are more likely to be affected, and a second peak in the 60s, 70s, the older age group. And men are slightly more likely to be affected in this age group, although older women can also be affected.
3: How does it actually present? What do people complain about or turn up to the GP with?
1: Sure. Well, the hallmark of myasthenia gravis is fatigable muscle weakness. So painless muscle weakness that fluctuates from day to day or even within the day. This weakness typically starts in the eyes, so patients complain of ptosis or drooping of the eyelids, or perhaps their friends or relatives will notice this before they do. They can also complain of diplopia very frequently. And most people with myasthenia will start off with having symptoms in their eyes, but subsequently the symptoms will become more generalized and affect the arms or the legs or even the bulb or the swallowing and speech muscles in about 80% of the of patients.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, Great. And one of the key features of your article was that it's quite unpredictable in how it affects the muscles and which muscles are affected. And I guess is that why it's also quite easily uh, misdiagnosed or missed?
1: Well, I suppose it's quite easy to miss because, first of all, it's rare. If somebody hasn't seen it for a large part of their career and they're seeing it for the first time, I suppose you need a high index of suspicion to think about it in the first place. Secondly, I suppose the symptoms, fatigability, fatigue, muscle weakness, are quite nonspecific sometimes, and because they're so fluctuant and so variable, patients can find it difficult to put into words what their real symptoms are, so the main thing is to have a high index of suspicion.
3: And are there particular helpful features uh, in the history that may point towards myasthenia? I know you've mentioned fatigability.
1: Sure, well, the history really is the key to diagnosis in myasthenia, and I think the main thing is to ask patients very specific questions to, dra- to try and draw out um, the key features, which is muscle weakness that is fatigable and fluctuates. Um, So questions I ask patients are things like do you see double from time to time and ask them very specifically because it might only be at certain times of the day. A collateral history is useful should there be ptosis which can vary from time to time as well. Patients often complain of difficulty with weakness in their limbs as well so this is typically affecting the upper limbs more than the lower limbs and typically affects the muscles more proximally. So patients might complain of difficulty washing their hair, putting heavy things up on high shelves, things like that.
3: Okay, if a patient um, does come in with typical features, uh, what what would you suggest next?
1: So you take a full history, trying to draw out the features that I've just mentioned. I also take trouble to ask about bulbar features. So do people have difficulty swallowing? Do they tend to have nasal regurgitation of fluids? Um, Do they have any problems with breathlessness? Or do they get slurred speech, particularly at the end of a consultation? And you can often notice that quite naturally during your own consultation with Mm. with the patient. Um, Then Uh, examination um, should be directed at looking for muscle weakness, particularly trying to look for fatigability. So when you initially assess the patient's muscle strength it could be normal but if you try and perform specific manoeuvres to bring out some tiredness or fatigability you may find that the patient becomes weak. I often ask patients to count to 50 out loud and find that their speech becomes more slurred and quieter as they approach the higher numbers. I also test uh, shoulder abduction in the normal fashion then get the patient to perform unilateral exercise of one of the arms so abduction, adduction exercises and then reassess muscle strength and you can also often find that uh, the patient becomes weaker after this exercise.
3: As a non-specialist what would you advise them to do once they come to that conclusion?
1: Well if a general practitioner non-specialist feels that a patient might possibly have myasthenia gravis we would generally advise that they refer the patient to their local neurological centre. The reason for this is that both the diagnosis and the treatment of myasthenia is generally initiated in secondary care settings and some of the investigations that we perform to help us diagnose myasthenia are only available in specialised centres.
3: What kind of tests are they?
1: So I suppose a very baseline first test that can be done either in the GP's office or in the neurologist's outpatient setting is the ice test. If a patient has ptosis um, that can be measured, if you put ice in a crushed glove over the eye for about three minutes, look at the ptosis first and look at the ptosis after removal of the ice. If the ptosis improves, it's a strong indication that the patient might be suffering from myasthenia gravis. However, um, going on to other um, investigations, serology, so antibody testing, is probably first line. So, about 80% to 85% of people with myasthenia gravis will have antibodies to the acetylcholine receptor. A smaller, a, a variable proportion of the remainder will have antibodies to a protein known as Musk, M-U-S-K, muscle specific tyrosine kinase. Um, there are a proportion of patients about 10 to 15 percent that will be persistently seronegative so that won't have antibodies detectable on serological tests but still have myasthenia gravis. After doing the antibody tests, then we'd move on to doing um, electrophysiological tests. So typical electrophysiology or routine electrophysiology is generally normal in myasthenia gravis. So routine nerve conduction studies and EMG are normal and you might miss the diagnosis if you don't request the specific tests which are repetitive nerve stimulation and single fibre EMG.
3: Um, Now there's also an association with myasthenia and other diseases and uh, for example other tumours as well uh, such as thymoma. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Absolutely so roughly 10 to 15 percent of patients with myasthenia will have a thymoma that's I suppose in a way driving the um, the antibody mediated disease and although it doesn't form part of the diagnostic tests for myasthenia all patients who are diagnosed with myasthenia gravis should undergo scanning to exclude the presence of an underlying thymoma so either ct or mri depending on the local guidelines and these patients generally do undergo thymectomy to remove the tumour. Okay
3: talking about um, thymectomy and treatments um, what's the treatment for the actual condition for myasthenia gravis?
1: The first thing, if you have a patient with myasthenia gravis, is to assess how severe their weakness is. So if they have severe weakness that's rapidly worsening, particularly if they have lots of bulbar symptoms or respiratory muscle involvement, they should be referred to their local hospital as soon as possible. However, if the patient has a more milder phenotype and isn't quite as weak, it's reasonable to start off on symptomatic treatment. And The symptomatic treatment for myasthenia is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, commonly pyridostigmine. So this has to be given a number of times a day because it's a short half-life, usually between three and five times a day and it doesn't affect the disease's progression but it certainly can improve the symptoms such as ptosis and muscle weakness. Going on then a lot of patients will require immunomodulatory therapy um, and typically first line for that would be steroids, oral prednisolone would be the first line that we would use. If patients require chronic or long-term immunosuppression, however, because of the side effects of long-term steroids, we generally would then initiate oral steroid sparing agents. The ones used most commonly would include azathioprine, mycophenolate and methotrexate.
3: And at the start of your article, you've also talked about some of the complications of myasthenia gravis and and the most dangerous of these is a myasthenic crisis. What is that?
1: So myasthenic crisis is defined as rapidly worsening weakness due to myasthenia gravis that affects the respiratory muscles that requires mechanical ventilation. So these are patients who have bad myasthenia that affects their breathing and can result in respiratory arrest. It's a neurological emergency. They need to be in an intensive care unit and may require mechanical ventilation.
3: And are there any other lesser known complications of uh, myasthenia gravis?
1: If myasthenia gravis is chronic, patients can develop some fixed muscle weakness that doesn't fluctuate so much, That but that's more in very chronic long-standing disease.
3: Thank you very much, Jennifer. Before we finish, so what would be the take-home message for the average non-specialist, be at the hospital doctor or the GP, for myasthenia gravis?
1: So I suppose the take-home message really would be, just to bear myasthenia gravis in mind, although it is rare, you're likely to have at least one patient with it in your practice. It can present at any age and we're increasingly recognizing it in the elderly population and it's often the elderly population in whom it's missed. Bear it in mind as a possible cause of muscle weakness, particularly fluctuating muscle weakness, and to take a thorough history trying to elicit these uh, the symptoms that I talked about. And if you suspect myasthenia gravis to refer your patient to your local neurology centre.
3: That's great. And uh, also in your article, I think you've mentioned that 13% of patients were diagnosed more than five years afterwards, weren't they? So so hopefully we can bring that down.
1: Absolutely. That's the aim.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
0: And again, that article in the Easily Missed series is available online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Join us again next week. Bye till then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.